Hello everyone, welcome again to another podcast episode. This is Nyla and I thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Greener Thoughts. It's the podcast about environmental news, commentary, environmental facts, and also other things that you'd like to know. This episode's topic is all about uh, how mosquitoes are bigger in actual low-income areas. The podcast Greener Thoughts is produced every Sunday and Thursday. Please be sure to favorite, review, and also share Greener Thoughts. Um, You know, one of the ways that I think it's really special to share Greener Thoughts is because it can really help someone else. And if you feel so inclined, you can contact Greener Thoughts by voice message. I love voice messages. And you can find out the info about them in the podcast description, as well as every episode show notes. Or you could always send an email to greenerthoughtspodcast at gmail.com. everyone so I thought that I would do things differently for um, my podcast episodes going forward so I'm going to split the announcement portion um, before the in other news segment so um, you'll just have the announcements and if there are any announcements I will talk about those first um, and then we can go on into in other news and then the main news section and um, other uh, sections as well Um, But if there are no announcements for um, podcast episodes going into the future, then I will just go to the another news segment and go on from there. Um, So I want to announce first that I created this really big master list of the various types of environmental holidays um, that our planet, of course, celebrates. And um, like I said before, if there aren't any, you know, holidays or any other additional announcements going forward, then I guess, you know, I will just, you know, proceed with um, the program as usual. But I want to start off with um, some belated news. So happy belated uh, Global Hand Washing Day. It is annually on October 15th. And each year it is on October 15th. And Global Hand Washing Day is observed to highlight the importance of hand washing. So hand washing at home and in your community you know, around the world. So to get more information about uh, hand washing techniques and resources and such, you can head on over to globalhandwashing.org for more. The um, second um, really interesting and awesome um, celebration is called International Shakeout Day. And it's always held on um, October 17th. And, you know, sometimes it ranges with it being um, on the second Thursday in October, but it's usually always on the um, 17th of October. And, you know, you can really help yourself to learn about what to do in the time of an earthquake. Um, You can learn with things like drills and with information and resources um, for yourself or uh, for those who live in uh, earthquake prone areas. Um, in parts of the world. So for more information about International Shakeout Day 
Um, you can go to shakeout.org for more information. And then the fourth or third announcement is um, about another special day as well. International Day uh, for the Eradication of Poverty is uh, October the 17th. So happy International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. Um, quote, one of the keys to ending child poverty is addressing poverty in the household from which it often stems. Access to quality social services must be a priority, end quote. And that is said of the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. And you can find out more about the really awesome events uh, taking place always on October 17th um, by going to the UN.org's website, which I will link uh, specifically uh, in the show notes for you. And then also another announcement. Um, the fourth and last one is really sad, and it's about a, a Marylander who is a prominent and really important figure in Maryland politics. Um, he's Mr. Um, Elijah Eugene Cummings, otherwise known as Elijah E. Cummings, and he's a notable American politician and um, was a U.S. representative um, in Maryland's uh, 7th Congressional District, and he served uh, for a long time, since 1996. He recently passed away, and he was, you know, a Baltimore politician, and he was born all the way back in 1951, on January 18th, and he died on um, October 17th, 2019 which is uh, the day that this uh, podcast is being recorded and published. And so he's known for his, you know, national attention to uh, his stance and principal stance on, you know, many politically charged issues in the House. And, you know, he had a calming effect on anti-police riots and things in Baltimore. And he was really a forceful opponent of the presidency of Trump. And he died um, at the hospice center in uh, John Hopkins Hospital um, in Baltimore, Maryland. And it was from, quote, complications concerning long-standing health challenges, his office said, end quote. And um, he died at the age of 68 years old. Greener Thoughts? Supporting Greener Thoughts ensures more giveaways are available with even more exciting prizes, future Greener Thoughts merchandise, and surprises found only on Greener Thoughts. I greatly appreciate and love all of the listeners who have tuned in and who support Greener Thoughts by doing good for the planet. One of the many ways I would love your support is by clicking the second lower link in the description section of this episode. It's the direct support link for Greener Thoughts. In other news is our next segment, and it is just a quick dose of what's happening in today's world. The first headline is all about California, and so it goes on to talk about fur. So California bans or becomes the first state to ban the sale of fur products. I'm so excited about this. You can find out more about the information in um, the HuffPost section, in the environment section specifically. HuffPost is otherwise known as Huffington Post. 
And so California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, he's a Democrat, actually signed the new law uh, recently on the Saturday and instituted a statewide ban on animal fur products. Yes, that means California is indeed the first state in the nation uh, with this law. And it becomes effective um, a little bit later down the line in January 2023. And it prohibits the sale and make and manufacture, of course, of new uh, fur products. And this ban will not apply to used fur products or uh, fur products used for religious purposes or for traditional tribal cultural or even spiritual purposes by members of indigenous tribes. The uh, second headline is also about California. In fact, all of these uh, headlines are about California, just to give you the heads up. So the second uh, headline is also, like I said, about California. And so California is to unveil a new uh, earthquake alert system Thursday. Um, And so you can find out more about the info on npr.org in its environment section. And so scientists can't really, you know, yet predict what's going to happen, when's the next um, deadly hurricane going to strike. So they created this emergency response um, plan. And so authorities in California um, have planned um, and are planning to um, end up uh, unveiling this new statewide system. Um, it's an earthquake warning system, and it's actually in time to mark the 30th anniversary of the 1989 Loma Prietera um, earthquake. I'm probably saying it wrong, um, Prieta uh, earthquake, P-R-I-E-T-A. And also, it you know coincidentally just lines up perfectly with International Shakeout Day, which I mentioned earlier in the announcement, so that's really perfect. Um, But one thing to note is that the warnings will be issued in uh, two different ways. So via a uh, cell phone app called MyShake and also the more traditional uh, wireless notification system that just sends out uh, Amber Alerts. And uh, quote, the California Earthquake Early Warning System is based on innovative technology that will improve over time. In rare circumstances, you may receive a shake alert when there was no earthquake, end quote. And that's what the announcement of the system said. And then the third and last headline is again about California. And it's about how California demands PG&E compensate customers affected by forced power outage. Again, you can find out more about it on uh, Huffington Post a.k.a. HuffPost, vice versa, and again, it's in the environment section. And so, quote, uh, Californians should not pay the price for decades of PG&E's greed and neglect, uh, end quote, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom said. And also, in his announcement, Newsom urged for Northern California Utility, uh, or urged for the uh, Northern California Utility to give affected customers um, an, auto, uh, an automatic credit um, or rebate of $100 per residential customer um, and $250 per uh, small business. In total, 738,000 people across 35 countries stand to benefit. 
so um, next is a course where I get into the news and so the source uh, for this podcast news mainly comes from ENN.com and so um, I love environmental news network and that's why it's what it's known as and so I'm going to get into the reasons as to why I um, decided to talk about this topic in particular and one of them one of the reasons is because um, it's about Baltimore um, you know I'm about an hour or 20 minutes from Baltimore because I live in uh, the southern part of the state of Maryland and so um, I wanted to highlight um, a really particular issue that's kind of complex in some ways and because it happens to do with Baltimore and my state I thought to um, definitely um, shine some light on this because it's an example of what happens in a region in an area where um, you know resources may not be so plentiful and if they are then it's not affecting those who are affluent and it's affecting those and you'll see and hear about in the news um, why it sort of is happening there and you know how it can be kind of mitigated and stopped um, and also number two reason I want to talk about it is because it's a socioeconomic issue for sure and I, and I knew it from the moment um, it talked about the levels of income disparities um, and why those in Baltimore who happen to live in the, in the lower income um, areas and neighborhoods are affected more greatly than those who live in more um, you know, prestigious or um, more wealthier um, areas within Baltimore. And so, you know, I love discussing these um, issues and, and topics and talking about them in depth. Um, I sometimes get to talk about, you know, these different things depending on what topic I bring about to um, you all as a podcast episode. So I really, really dived into it with the research and also um, what I will speak on in my thoughts portion um, of the podcast episode. So I can't wait to dive into this and I really hope it's extremely helpful, especially for those who maybe do live in Baltimore. Um, or in the surrounding areas, and even those who live in other places that happen to, you know, maybe be hit, you know, hard economically. So I really hope that this brings a lot of information your way in a lot of different ways. So um, the news I want to start off with, just the title. So I entitled this, um, Mosquitoes Are Making Waves in a Big Way. So I want to give you some background on the research first off. Um, so those who are, you know, poor, I think anyone knows that the costs, um, for them are great, greater, um, and it affects them even more than they could ever dream of or think of. Um, so even at the cost of, you know, being poor, it, it really does, uh, take a hit to every other facet of their life. And in the research, um, they found out that, um, you know, lower income urban neighborhoods, they not only have more mosquitoes, but they also, um, they are having larger bodied, um, mosquitoes. You know, this indicates that they, um, of course, um, efficient at transmitting, uh, different diseases. Uh, many of the likes are varied, very, uh, different, but well-known diseases. Um, so you may be thinking, what types of diseases, what kinds of diseases are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the likes of, um, 
uh, dengue fever, for example, and in, in other ones too, I'll, I'll get to, you know, talking about a little bit later, but uh, malaria and all types of other ones. So it's just a lot of complexity there that I want to talk about as well, but I want to give you a little bit more um, information there. So as far as the mosquitoes, um, they um, first started by being um, looked at by the researchers um, with great intent. So the intent of this research and study was for the researchers to examine how the differences in juvenile uh, mosquito habitats um, along a spectrum of urban infrastructure abandonment um, can influence the adult body size of the invasive uh, tiger mosquito. Uh, so the research was done and led by the Cary uh, Institute of Ecosystem Studies. It was led, uh, led the study and it was published in the Journal of Medical uh, Etymology uh, and it was investigated uh, investigated how socioeconomics uh, influences mosquito-borne disease risk in uh, Baltimore, Maryland specifically. So the uh, tiger mosquitoes, they dominated in areas and they do dominate in areas um, where there are a lot of people. So in major areas, um, in major cities, in major uh, metropolises across the world, um, but specifically here where they studied in Baltimore, Maryland, um, they're prone to develop. They're, they're known to develop where there is a lot of human development and where it's prevalent. Uh, next, you may be asking, you know, how was the research conducted? So that's what we're, getting, we're going to get into now. Uh, so how was the research uh, started and conducted and, and, and henceforth? So um, the adult female tiger mosquitoes were collected um, from 13 different residential blocks within Baltimore. And this was done so over three uh, different summers. So three summers consecutively. Um, and it took place between um, June and July of the years um, 2015, 2016, and 2017, making those three uh, consecutive summers. And those blocks were um, distributed among five different neighborhoods. Um, and they were arranged in their socioeconomic status um, with, of course, varying levels of management and, and who uh, overs oversaw which properties, etc., and how many um, occupants lived in, uh, of course, each block. So it varied, you know, widely. Um, and then each block had specific uh, teams. So those teams measured um, one particular thing. They measured the percentage of abandoned structures, which we talked about earlier, and accounted uh, the discarded container habitats or the objects that were specifically holding water, like standing water, because that's, that's really important because that's where uh, mosquitoes breed and lay their eggs. So they were counting the percentage of, again, abandoned structures or you know, buildings that were no longer um, uh, inhabitable, you know, empty you know, places and things like that. And then the containers where the uh, mosquitoes would thrive. And so um, this measuring was done, of course, to uh, determine whether those differences in those features, again, the two features, the abandoned structures and discarded uh, containers across uh, several blocks um, influenced the numbers of one, 
the juvenile tiger mosquitoes and then to the adult female uh, body sizes of those mosquitoes once they you know grow up so this is very important uh, the next thing is the findings of the research so in total what was the sum of what happened after those uh, stagnant uh, water surfaces and containers were studied and abandoned buildings what do we find we find a few things one of them is that over the three years of the study, uh, 1,097 mosquitoes were in total collected and they were measured, so measured um, by their wingspan specifically. And the team found that mosquitoes from blocks uh, with higher abandonment um, had ha uh, larger wings uh, than those collected on more affluent blocks with less abandonment. And the uh, wing length uh, differences of less than one millimeter um, can actually affect things like the traits of the mosquitoes. So yes, this is pretty important. So I didn't even know this. Um, so the, the traits of the mosquitoes are things like uh, their fecundity, their longevity, you know, how long they're able to fly and their ability to even spread disease. So the wingspan of mosquitoes varies differently among uh, places where there are are high abandonment levels and percentages than those uh, mosquitoes that go to and um, are prevalent or or maybe uh, you know growing in affluent and neighborhoods and blocks with less abandonment so wing differences make the difference just a few millimeters difference um, also um, less affluent blocks um, average 400 habitats per square kilometer with 80% um, containing mosquito larvae. So that's a large number of uh, habitats for these mosquitoes to grow. But more affluent blocks averaged only 50 containers per square kilometer with less than 5% containing mosquito larvae. So that's the difference between 350 uh, habitats or containers for mosquitoes to breed per square kilometer. That's a huge, huge uh, difference there in disparity um, and difference in the uh, containers. So, you know, that's, you know, really to the point. Um, so there are, you know, several factors that I think have created those, you know, larger, more robust mosquitoes. Um, and one of them uh, was the difference in, uh, like the research pointed out, the differences block to block in the uh, habitat of the mosquito. So the, the abandoned buildings and the vacant lots and the trash, um, you know, that kind of influence the mosquito populations definitely plays a role in, you know, whether these mosquitoes, you know, bite you and how often, um, where they bite you and your risk for diseases, uh, depending on the blocks and, and, and where you are um, living. So if you happen to, you know, live in the uh, lower income, a spectrum of neighborhoods versus the affluent ones like you're getting hit by you know tons of mosquito bites all the time and you're risking your life and your health uh, versus those who live in more affluent areas that don't really have to um, you know deal at the same rate uh, with the mosquito problem and the growth of their uh, mosquito population uh, so all in all uh, let's get to the results in conclusion you know straight to the point the results are pretty clear. You know, mosquitoes are from less affluent blocks were in are larger uh, than mosquitoes from more um, affluent blocks. 
So for more information, as there always is so much to learn, I will of course link um, the research in the show notes for you all so you can check it out. And then I want to leave you with a, a quick notable quotable. So um, the Cary Institute disease um, ecologist, Shannon Ledeau, she's the senior author on a study. She concludes the following, quote, the trends we're seeing in mosquito numbers in body size map onto socioeconomic patterns uh, at the block level. Uh, there are environmental justice and equity incomp- uh, implications at play. Residents of less affluent neighborhoods are exposed to more mosquitoes. If those mosquitoes have greater longevity or fitness, as previous studies on body size suggest, then residents may be at a greater risk of contracting mosquito-borne illnesses. There is a pressing need to address infrastructure abandonment and waste management to protect all residences or all residents, end quote. So I just want to, I guess, begin um, just by saying that, you know, the poor and specifically the working poor, I believe that they always suffer more greatly um, than other income levels and other um, socioeconomic um, factors at play. Um, and because they suffer most, I think that, you know, no matter what happens, we have to protect the poor. Um, and we have to do so smart and in ways that really help them because, you know, they suffer and they suffer so much. Sometimes people forget that the poor are you know, actually living amongst us, like they live and breathe and they work where we work sometimes. And, you know, they do the job. Sometimes people don't want them to, you know, necessarily do. They don't want to see or think of the poor, but they're there and they need to be heard and seen. This is a great example, um, yet again, of, you know, putting the, the poor in the, in the working poor, um, in the, in the, in the, in the spotlight and, and showing them for, um, you know, them being visible. And so, um, you know, I think if the environment for the mosquitoes to, to thrive was destroyed, I think that that would be a start to ending the problem. But also, you know, the poor, they're probably not checking for, you know, mosquito, mosquito larvae and, and, and trying to rid, you know, their, those habitats themselves, they're busy trying to, you know, survive and make it from day to day. Um, so there's a responsibility, maybe a little bit on them, but also on, you know, civic activism and cleaning up your neighborhood and taking it upon yourself to clean up where you live. Um, I want to get to talking about environmental negligence and the responsibility we all have um, to take care of our neighborhoods and our community and where we live and, of course, operate. And I say this because environmental negligence isn't something to, you know, shuffle and put on someone else's back and say they're to blame or, you know, not look internally and figure out, you know, through self-reflection what you can do to take care of your own space. Yes, we all know that, you know, littering is bad, that it's better to recycle and it's better to reuse, But for more than 50 years, it's been harder and harder for Americans to even think about, just for example, 
um, you know, recycling and making our neighborhoods cleaner. You know, the fact that we recycle less than 25% of our waste is a problem. And if, uh, you know, there are places like in Baltimore where the waste is a problem, yeah, that can be, be that can be fixed. But the, the poor aren't the only people that live in Baltimore. There are millions of people that live in Baltimore and in and around Baltimore. So why aren't they helping cleaning up? That's something to, you know, look inside yourself and see, you know, why can't I be part of the uh, solution? You know, this problem is a waste management problem, a trash problem, and it's a, a problem about beautification as well. If the lots, the empty lots, the abandoned buildings, the empty car tires, the car parts, the abandoned property outside different areas, low income, income, low income areas of Baltimore is the problem, people need to band together and clean them up, poor or not. Doesn't matter what you look like, your socioeconomic background, your skin color, whatever. You deserve to live and thrive in places that reflect you, what pride you have in your community and where you live in your environment, and you deserve that, and you should give it to yourself. You know, don't blame the poor for where they live. It got that way because people, you know, sometimes move. Sometimes people move and leave their stuff and then expect it to just, you know, act like it's it's swept under the rug, and that's not that's not feasible. You know, you can't just empty out a place or or be a part of some, you know, something like white flight, for example, which happens. Um, and it's where those who happen to be um, white or Anglo-Saxon Protestant, for example, and they leave certain areas. And then, um, you know, those areas, sometimes they suffer a depression or they are economically, um, there's a downward shift in uh, the income sometimes or the property uh, levels, for example. Um, and so that doesn't mean, you know, that you lack pride in where you live just because everyone happens to, you know, up and just leave. You still take care of where you live. You build up your economic base. You instill uh, values of um, keeping your community um, up and positive and, and beautiful. Keep it beautified. And, you know, you don't worry about who or what comes into your community um, because at the end of the day, you know that you can keep it beautiful, keep the money flowing in it, um, and have pride in where you live. There's nothing wrong with having pride in where you live. Clean up your streets, your neighborhood, make sure gangs aren't around, you know, and get rid of trouble where it is. So I want to talk about next this really amazing book. It's one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorite social science books, period, and it's called The Working Poor. And I've read about 70% of it. Um, I, I, I bought it, um, I think, in 2017, and it's by the author um, David K. Shipler. And it's an amazing read. Um, and I love reading social science books just because that's my background in, in sociology, but also because this book um, really highlights the different ways that uh, poverty is intrinsic in some of the lives of the people that it harms and it hurts. And it, it talks about, uh, from their personal sp perspective, why uh, they're trying to get out of it and how, and sometimes how the, the cycle just, it's really like, it's sort of disheartening to see how hard and tough it is for those to escape poverty you know, because of the grab it has on them from working 
dead end jobs to, you know, having to, you know, fall behind in bills for certain things and not having qualifications to move up in the social uh, ladder or in, you know, leadership and work. It's very um, difficult, but I think it is um, what some people would say. It's easy to blame the poor like, oh, you know, you think, you know, they should move out and just, you know, try and get better for themselves and try and get better work and get more money, you know, but it always doesn't work like that. You know, it, it's very, it's, it's hard to identify all the different factors that affect those who are poor, but there are some really big ones and I want to talk about those. So I, I identified a few different, um, but powerful, um, mechanisms that are holding those, um, in poverty. And so I want to discuss those briefly with you. So one of the first ones is, I think, um, biases in, um, employment and hiring. So if you have someone in front of your desk who, you know, may have some of the qualifications that you think are great for your position, but yet you're not following, um, EEO guidelines and hiring, you know, regardless of what they look like, their creed, their national origin, their sex, their color, their age, whatever, and you're not taking into account um, that this person could be an asset to you and you, you are, uh, have some biases or maybe even some prejudices against this person in front of you, that's a problem. And that is hindering people from leveling up into uh, being a, a having that seniority in companies or even, you know, offshooting and getting their own uh, monies together from working in your company or whatever company and branching and building their own. That's a, that's a problem. Their biases in employment and who you're hiring, people are never going to get where they need to be. And there's always going to be some level of poverty. And then in the United States, it's big. The um, second um, thing or the uh, second um, really big problem and hindrance as to why there's, I think, poverty, um, and just specifically in somewhere maybe like uh, Baltimore, is because of redlining. Now, redlining um, systematically and directly affects mainly those uh, historically, um, you know, based on their color, um, especially uh, blacks, uh, black people, you know, myself included. Like, like redlining is not fun. It's not cool. And it really happened uh, way back when, when there was um, the, you know, gain for um, creating housing in the United States. And in certain cities, metropolitans, m metropolitan areas, um, you would have certain places that were marked off where um, those who were white could live or were directed to live um, in certain areas uh, you know, property rises, property, um, uh, rates and, and, and income levels were, were high and mighty and, and property values were high, but those in, uh, other areas weren't so lucky. And so they had to, of course, take loans to pay for their homes and other such things. And it was very toxic. It was very taxing to deal with that, um, day in and day out. But, um, you know, now some of the effects of redlining still um, affects today. So that is something to also remember. And then a third um, thing to know about is that there are pay discrepancies. Yes, in the United States, whether you're male or female, no matter what color you are, there are disparities in your pay. 
And sometimes you can even find them out within the company that you uh, work in or maybe the industry. So um, I don't know the specific as far as somewhere like Baltimore, but I'm sure that there are discrepancies in the pay and it may, you know, reach, you know, far beyond your color or um, your background and experience or your age or anything like that. But there's probably some discrepancy that's leading to why um, also there's a, a big um, gap in the uh, pay and in the uh, socioeconomic levels, um, specifically income levels um, of those in Baltimore. And then um, the last thing I, that I think affects the poor, and especially uh, for someone like uh, Baltimore, is environmental, environmental racism. Um, environmental racism is, um, you know, not something to be triggered, you know, off of, but it is, I think, really prevalent, especially when you look at the, um, landfills and, um, nuclear, uh, power plants or coal industry or, or refineries or anywhere else, oil refineries maybe, um, or any other toxic, um, pollutant or, or pollutant. <laughs> or polluter, I should say, um, in Baltimore. So those who live around those areas, that's, you know, pretty important to recognize if they're, you know, being disenfranchised because of where they live based on, you know, something that they can't change. You can't change your skin color. And, you know, you're having people live near uh, places where there are, you know, huge rates of asthma, childhood asthma, you know, things like diabetes, you know, because of food deserts and all types of other things that are connected that I don't really have time to talk about right now, but are so important, I promise. So, you know, those are just a few of the things I found that are related to this, and I'm so glad I got to talk about them. I don't know if anyone uh, knew about some of those things, but I'm glad that you know now. Um, you know, so I want to talk about, you know, a solution and some other things also um, in the next segment, but... I think one of the the best solutions is to fix the failure um, to manage um, the abandonment and waste issues um, in, you know, impoverished neighborhoods. So whether those things get fixed or not, that's a big, you know, solution right there. And I talked about it earlier. You have to clean up where you are and live and have that pride there. Um, And so, you know, if you don't um, clean up those areas, there's going to be greater mosquito production, you know mosquitoes lay their eggs there and they're going to be in those neighborhoods those impoverished neighborhoods for longer I mean you're going to have the more of those eggs and they're going to um, create bigger and greater vector potential and vectors are just organisms to you know transmit uh, pathogens so like insects like the mosquitoes so those things uh, with cleaning up those neighborhoods is step one but also I think um, making sure that the poverty is lessened so that you don't have the problem of the impoverished neighborhood in the first place. Um, and then I think a key takeaway also is that, you know, if there was a magic solution to just wipe away on the mosquitoes, you know, I think it would be temporary, like I said before, because, um, you know, those low-income areas, you know, they're not going to change by themselves overnight. Um, but if they did, then maybe then the mosquitoes would go away too. Mm 
The Mother Earth Minute is the time where I review in the next few minutes actions that you can take to combat the issue in the episode and of course save Mother Earth. Now the message for uh, this podcast episode is that according to the WHO or the World Health Organization, mosquitoes are one of the deadliest animals in the world and their ability to carry and spread disease to humans causes millions of deaths every year. In 2015, malaria alone caused 438,000 deaths. The um, first tip I have is a pretty simple one. And it's to first rid yourself of the places where mosquitoes love to make their homes, of course, in those empty containers, in flower pots, in tires, and you know, cups and bowls and all types of other junk that people sometimes have around. Um, and also build homes for the enemies of mosquitoes. Um, so mosquitoes, they're pretty simple but yet complex in some ways. And they have um, a life cycle and that comes in three stages. So uh, while in the water, they are the egg and are from the egg and then larvae and then they're uh, in the pupa, pupa stage, pupa, pupa stage. <laughs> and so that takes um, all in all about four to uh, 14 days or two weeks. So, you know, as a result, you'll find uh, stagnant or standing water just around. And if it's even around for a minimum of four days, you know, that starts and kickstarts the uh, mosquito's life cycle. So to prevent that, you have to kind of reduce where they're able to even lay their eggs and breathe. Um, uh, So you can get rid of um, open water sources. So, you know, standing water, like I mentioned, in buckets, tires, like I said, bowls. Um, old equipment, rain barrels is a big one because that holds, of course, a lot of water. Just any container that you can think of just needs to be removed. And then um, part two of this is to build homes for uh, animals that love to eat mosquitoes. So they're the enemies of mosquitoes. So animals like bats or frogs, fish, if you love fish, maybe a fish pond, turtles, if you're a turtle lover get, you know, growing with the turtles and have them um, go ahead and eat the mosquitoes. Uh, Birds or even dragonflies. Dragonflies are really great and all those animals naturally eat mosquitoes. So I think that that's a really um, powerful tool, having those uh, enemies of mosquitoes there. And you just have to make sure that those animals are plentiful in your neighborhood, in your home, and also in your community. They can also help get rid of uh, mosquitoes and sort of... um, Uh, get rid of them just for some time before you, of course, clean up uh, where those mosquitoes uh, would be. The uh, second tip I have for you is that you can create and make your own natural mosquito repellent. So if by chance you're cleaning up uh, where you are and trying to get rid of the habitats of mosquitoes, you can create and and maybe lessen the chance that you'll get bit um, by uh, mosquitoes. So one of the things is uh, cinnamon leaf oil. And one study found that it was more effective at killing mosquitoes than uh, DEET. And another uh, repellent is clear liquid uh, vanilla extract that's mixed with olive oil. And then another, uh, the third um, tip here is um, all about washing uh, with citronella soap. Also, that's another repellent. And then you can put some um, pure citronella, 100% essential oil, 
Also mixed with an oil, a carrier oil is known as um, a bigger and thicker oil to hold the um, concentration of the essential oil. You can use something like olive oil or coconut oil with the uh, citronella uh, uh, um, essential oil. Um, also, a Java citronella is considered the highest quality of citronella um, on the market, so be sure to snag that and then use it with the carrier oil um, to dilute it, but also to um, keep it um, strong um, so that you can use it as a repellent. And then you can also use something like catnip oil, which I didn't even know was a thing. And according to one study, this oil is 10 times more effective than DEET. Um, so there are other um, oils that you can try, like fennel oil, uh, thyme, um, clove oil, celery extract, or even neem oil. And then the uh, third uh, tip is that, um, you know, it's been suggested that 85% of your susceptibility to mosquito bites is, you know, based on genetics. So yeah, if your mom and dad or anyone in your immediate family probably, um, you know, has a high risk for being bit by mosquitoes, then you're probably up there too. So um, I want to just give you some information about, you know, some of the people that are most at risk for attracting mosquitoes and getting bit um, or bitten. So uh, people with high concentrations of steroids or even cholesterol on their skin surface are people or, the, or a group. Um, people who produce excess amounts of uric acid. Uh, people who give off uh, more carbon dioxide, this includes pregnant women and those who are larger or overweight. Also people with type O blood, um, people who are exercising, you know, those who, you know, sweat heavy, there's a lot of heat, lactic acid buildup and movement, all those things lure mosquitoes. If you're really active, you know, joggers, runners, all those, you're probably uh, more likely to uh, be bitten. And then all those who are beer drinkers, yes, for you know many mysterious reasons. Those who uh, love alcohol, love beer, uh, drinking alcohol stimulates uh, mosquito attraction for some reason. And then um, the last and fourth tip I have for you is to check out one of my uh, previous podcast episodes. And it's entitled Ways to Get Rid of Mosquitoes Naturally. And I did it uh, back in April uh, 2019. So you can check it out. And I will, of course, leave the link for it in the show notes. The eco fact of the day is that the Trump administration orders that the U.S. Geological Survey climate assessments project only as far as 2040, rather than to the end of the century. That fact was sourced from the Sierra Club Sierra Magazine in a September-October 2019 issue. Greener Dodge wants to hear your story. You can choose to self-nominate or nominate an individual who exhibits environmental stewardship and supports the environment. Do you work hard in the environmental field, in either an organization or company? Either way, let Greener Thoughts know. 
If you want to tell your story and be in for a unique surprise, please be sure to send your 200-word essay to the email address greenadoptpodcast at gmail.com. The Eagle Company Spotlight is the time in which we have come to right now. And it is, of course, where I review amazing companies that are doing good and they are full of environmental you know, products um, and tons of services. And many of which I, of course, supported, you know, invested my time with, money, all types of things. And I've been doing so for some time since February. Um, of 2019 and I love it and you know to get to share this uh, next uh, company with you all is a joy and so if you have any uh, companies that you love talking about and maybe I should hear about or maybe you have a product or service that is really near and dear to you that you've created and you want me to review it let me know so for now um, I'm going to let you know about an amazing company called Tivana So Tivana was crafted to bring you premium ingredients, years of expertise, and sustainable tea practices to create delicious tea blends with layered flavors, all for you to simply and slowly sip to. Tivana was bought by Starbucks and all um, 379 locations were sold as of 2018. Uh, All Tivana teas are locally blended in the Seattle area by their tea experts, um, which is a team of dedicated artisans that are inspired uh, by the world, of course, around them. And all Tivana teas are to be 100% ethically uh, sourced teas by 2020. Uh, They will also continue to empower 250,000 women and families by 2025. And they also will continue their commitment to women, children, and families in India. Now, Tivana has many awesome tea products like their mango black tea, their Meyer uh, lemon black tea, their passion tango herbal tea, their peach green tea, their pineapple berry blue herbal tea, their strawberry apple green tea, their sparkling blackberry lime green tea, their sparkling blood orange mango white tea, and also their sparkling peach nectarine green tea. And you also have a really great uh, hot tea sachets like their uh, beet uh, benelli or bellini, I should say, and their citrus lavender. They have their Earl Grey creme, uh, the imperial spice chai. They also have their jade citrus mint their peach tranquility and also their uh, product youth berry now to contact tivana all you have to do is contact them and call them at their number 800 starbuck that's 800-782-7282 and their hours are 7 a.m to 8 p.m pacific standard time seven days a week I want to give you my experience about Tivana. Now, I love their iconic tins, for example. They're just amazing, and I've probably had them for more than five years. I fell in love with their Blueberry Bliss and Pineapple Kona Pop um, tea, and it was the um, Roybos, 
um, tea that they had, and I got the one-pound version. And also, um, I had their uh, Maraha uh, chai um, and their Oolong um, Samurai chai uh, mate. That was the uh, blend. And it was also one pound, and you really can't get those anymore on their site because um, I read them, all their flavors and everything, but... I love fruit teas, as you probably all know. Um, I can't get enough of them, especially anything with pomegranates in them. Um, and so I love their flavors. So full of so much depth and their loose leaf teas, which I do love um, because sometimes I don't just want to, you know, have, you know, something where I can't maybe filter it. And it's more organic, um, you know, for me to do that with my teas. And they have amazing flavor and combinations I didn't even think of. And I fell in love with it more than five years ago. And I just had to talk about it. So again, their teas, you know, when they when they were um, something that I had bought at the time, long time ago, still have one of the uh, teas, the chai one that I talked on. Um, they have the big bulk variety in their tins, which are, you know, staples, you know, the purple uh, top very big they last for years if you take care of them and they're really great of course for you know just relaxing and before bed and a very much good tea so all in all tea vanna products can be found online at their site uh, tvanna.com forward slash where dash to dash buy also available on amazon.com ebay.com Target.com, also Walmart.com, and other stores online and in stores across the country where available. Tvana is on the following social media platforms of Facebook at Tvana, Instagram at Tvana T, LinkedIn at Tvana, that's T-E-A-V-A-N-A. They're also on Pinterest at Tvana. Tvana is all capital or all capitalized. And also on Twitter at Tvana, same thing, Tvana all capitalized. And also on YouTube at Tvana. Last thing for you is to contact Tvana. You can go to their website, of course, www.tvana.com, and then click on Contact Us at the bottom of their webpage to contact them directly. All right. So. Thank you again thus far for listening in on this epic um, podcast episode. I enjoyed talking about it, being the Marylander that I am, proud of it, and I love my state. And I thought that I would really talk about this because Baltimore is just up north, not too far from me. Um, it's about an hour and some change uh, away, but I felt like this is important to especially highlight the uh, issues of getting rid of mosquitoes, and especially hitting those populations most vulnerable, the poor and the working poor, and those who live in you know different areas of Baltimore, although there are affluent areas and better areas and whatnot, but um, those who are affected greatly happen to always be the poor, so we always must remember that. So thank you again for listening in, and you can tune into another podcast episode, of course, coming up soon, but until then, thank you. And you take care. Bye.